It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 309, A New Look at the Transfiguration. Just above Caesarea Philippi is Mount Hermon. Uh, And this is where, you know, one of the scholarly opinions of the location of the Mount of Transfiguration is here at Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon, you could actually go into Google and type in Ski Israel. Um, It's, (laughs) there's actually a ski resort there. um, And it's, uh, extremely close to um, Tel Aviv and some of those other places, Um, you know, so many hours drive, but uh, you wouldn't think you could actually ski in this region of the world, but you can uh, because it's snow capped um, in the winters there. Um, And it's, it's a huge mountain, Uh, but looking at everything chronologically, it's pretty obvious to me as well uh, that the Mount of Transfiguration is Mount Hermon. Uh, and if you look and and realize the connections here and what Jesus is doing and what happened here historically, it just makes more sense as well. Here at the top of this mountain uh, was the place where the fallen angels came to pollute the DNA of man. And this goes way back before the flood. Um, this, uh, this is, you know, this is uh, from an extra biblical account, uh, the book of Enoch, which is actually quoted in the book of Jude, and as well as other places in the Bible. Uh, But this is where the fallen angels came, and they made their agreement with each other that they would uh, pollute man and their DNA, um, which led to the judgment of the flood. Now, it's here that fallen angels had come and made an agreement to destroy mankind, But it's also here where Jesus has his most profound documented heavenly encounter. And and then he, and need I mention that he actually meets with two of history's greatest prophets and men who ever lived, Moses and Elijah. Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. All right. So what just happened, right? I mean, (laughs) no one teaches on this verse uh, for a reason, right? 
I'm just kind of, kind of just throw out the topics and uh, discuss points, right? All right, Jesus becomes white like snow, but it's more like he glows or he is transfigured, reflecting a glorious light. He almost he becomes light. Uh, the word for this is glory. Jesus appeared in his full glory to them. He came in his glorious form. He became his heavenly form or his glorious form. But this speaks of of Moses' time up the mountain when he came down and his face glowed after seeing the face of God. This was in Exodus when, in my opinion here, the mobile throne of heaven came down before the Israelites, for there was a sea of glass, according to the scriptures, there was fire scars on the mountains, there was lightnings and smoke indicating something glorious coming down to earth. Now here, whether disciples were in a trance or it was in person, this could be some debate for they were heavy in sleep, it said, but Jesus shined almost like a star. So the mobile throne met him on top of this mountain. Now what to do with Elijah and Moses? I don't know what to do. <laughs> Moses died because the Bible says he died. Josephus says he didn't die. Jewish tradition says he almost like was, you know, like taken up to heaven almost like Elijah. But the Bible says he died. Jude says the archangel Michael and the devil fought over his body. So that means he died. So Moses died. But Elijah was taken up in a chariot or a whirlwind. So... We got two guys, one that died, one that didn't die, who just show up meaning Jesus. Now, we're not supposed to commune with the dead. We're not supposed to pray to the dead. We're not supposed to, you know, <laughs> it's called necromancy when you try to communicate with the dead. Uh, it, was, it was Saul who uh, tried to commune with Samuel through a witch, and he was cursed for it. So there is the, you know, demonic witchcraft form of speaking to the dead. And there's some other form here, which we don't understand, um, where Jesus communicates with Elijah and Moses. Um, I can't teach on that fact, uh, because um, except where there clearly you aren't supposed to conduct witchcraft, but there is some heavenly... Um, moment where Jesus does um, speak with um, those who had died before him. Um, there are moments, and you hear of it often, where someone has a near-death experience, or they actually died and were, you know, came back through prayer or some divine experience where they did. They, maybe they saw and needed to see, you know, a child that was aborted or a or uh, a grandfather who had been praying for him their whole life, or or and they meet him in heaven, or some wild story, right? So like that, these are the these are these heavenly encounter experiences um, that are hard to explain, but that's that's all you can attribute it to. So what do we do with all this, right? Like, what? Here's Moses. Here's Elijah. Uh, and I want to come at it from a different perspective. Um, we know, like, heaven's not a boring place. It's, it's quite a noisy place. There's tons of worship. There's tons of things going on. Um, it, it's beyond time and space in many ways. It's 
Um, it's by, beyond our understanding. You know, we, we call peace the atmosphere of heaven. Faith is uh, uh, the, the normalcy of heaven. Um, it, it's a different, it, it's it, God and Jesus is, is there. You know, it's, it's this perfect place that the most supernatural experiences here on earth are normal in heaven, right? Uh, and we learn, you know, like there's, it, it's not boring. It's not a, not a place where we just worship all day long, right? We want to worship all day long, but there's, I'm sure there's things to do. You know, we don't just sit around and do nothing. Uh, we'll have things to do. We'll have jobs. We'll have responsibilities. Uh, heavenly life uh, will be exciting. Uh, we don't just sit around and stare at Jesus all day. We probably want to, uh, but there's things to do. For example, Jesus says he goes to prepare a place for his believers. But he told the man with five talents he would eventually manage ten cities. These limited responsibilities and work ethic and commitment to God on earth opens the door for greater responsibilities, trust, and honor in heaven. We get to heaven by faith in Jesus, but we do on earth for him and the good works actually dictates what we do in heaven. That can be attributed to our faithfulness. Our faith gets us into heaven. The reward in heaven is the faithfulness that we display on earth. So what are Moses and Elijah doing? We can go down the spiritual symbolic route. I mean, Moses was the great lawbringer. Elijah, the prophet of power and fire. They represent the beginning of the Old Testament and the end of the Old Testament. But before we continue, we have to laugh at Peter. Why? Because I would laugh at me too if I was Peter. Just as this was happening, Peter opens his big mouth. Mark 9, 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. <laughs> In brackets, it says, he did not know what to say. They were frightened. Can you believe this is in the Bible? No, no other reason but to tell us that uh, Peter was saying something foolish. Yes, but also thank you, Peter, for telling us um, we are near the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which means it's the fall. It's the fall of this, this year that we're studying. Uh, but not yet. You know, a, a few chapters from now, um, Jesus will be at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, right? It's just a little too early, uh, but obviously their mind is there, right? The, uh, Peter suggesting this as uh, they put up their tabernacles. Yes, you're too early, but more importantly, you don't build a tabernacle to, to celebrate time in the wilderness when the promised Messiah was before them. It's not a wilderness season. It's a season of redemption. Everything is headed towards Passover and Pentecost, not tabernacles. Just as this happened, check out the cloud and the voice from heaven. Luke 9, 28. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So what do you do with this? So far, we can suppose the, the mobile throne of heaven came down on Mount Hermon, and for whatever reason, Moses and Elijah had a meeting with Jesus. 
dismissing how this can happen. <laughs> it's only can be orchestrated uh, by a heavenly experience. Don't try it on your own. Don't try to meet up with some, you know, lost family member praying or talking to him. Jesus would arrange it if there's anything of this sort. Don't try it on your own. That's witchcraft. Um, given the rules of engagement, um, as Saul conjured up Samuel via witchcraft from the dead, he was cursed. Don't do that. Don't take this verse and the story wrong, but understand Jesus can still do whatever he wants. So I see this as a sovereign move of God. Don't limit yourself to something crazy. And um, as long as it's, you know, it's backed up by scripture and Jesus is behind it, that's fine. But, but don't try to conjure up some communication with someone that's dead. There's a sovereign moves of God, though, where he shows he is about time and space. He can do whatever he wants. In this case, two dudes in heaven came for a strategy session with Jesus. Not that Jesus needs us, but he involves us in his plan. That's what he does. What fun would redemption be without the participation of the church and even his people? So back to the question, why Moses, why Elijah? I, I believe it's their responsibility, their assignment, their role. I, I believe we will, they, everyone has a part to play, even in the redemption of mankind um, before the rapture. Don't understand that, but um, don't know what or exactly, but here is Moses, put it this way, the great lawgiver. Perhaps this is conjecture, but Moses was just informed by Jesus that he would be fulfilling the law that he wrote, Moses wrote, via the cross. Moses, dumbfounded, just listened until Jesus assigned him the role of drafting up a, a new set of laws for a New Testament time period. Again, God doesn't need us. He can do it all himself, right? But he likes to involve his creation um, in his master plan. All right, so... Put it this way, uh, it was Moses, the great lawgiver, who had a part to play in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament spiritual legal code that would be forming, he would involve him. Why not? Right? That's just, it would actually make sense. A New Testament legal code that would change the entire context of law of sacrifices and priestly conduct to a decentralized New Testament off-the-chart concept of each of us becoming temples of the Holy Spirit. So while the Old Testament required, you know, the, the blood of bulls and goats, the atonement of sin once a year, uh, the going into the high place by the high priest um, on the Day of Atonement, now the radical thought, and the one that perhaps Moses, of course, working with Jesus, would help to put together a new set of laws until the right time to release this great revelation to Peter and later the Apostle Paul. Again, God doesn't need us, but there's something to be said here about Moses being a part of the process in the past and then now into the future. In summary, Moses, the great lawmaker, would have an assignment to assist in some way with the new law of the heart that Jesus was bringing. Elijah, on the other hand, and I won't compound on it too much, but he's the prophet of fire. 
he's fulfilled his symbolic role with John the Baptist, but the fire element would come at Pentecost and he as well would have a part to play. So however you want to look at it symbolically, spiritually, spirit and truth, they're coming together in the New Testament church. So to include this episode, let's revert back to the location for this. Here is Mount Hermon. And according to the book of Enoch, you know, we've gone through that and kind of made those points before the flood before. Here's the place that fallen angels referred to as the sons of man were in agreement here to defile the human race and DNA. The Alpha Omega principle is at work. And Psalms 7, 15 is at work here. They dig a hole to trap others, but they'll fall into it themselves. At the place of this wicked conception of evil, Jesus shuts down the demonic stronghold, brings the courts of heaven, displays in glory, and unveils his grand strategy of the cross to his disciples in heaven's greatest. Peter, James, and John will mindlessly make their way through the next year or so in utter amazing and bewilderment later. And all the while, heaven is preparing for man's redemption and theologically exploding <laughs> our drain of thought later. And then, and then using these three guys who were all part of it, um, who were clueless um, as to what was happening, but they will understand it later. Far in the future, the Apostle Paul uh, will f- refer to the future believers as saints. And further, he, he would start to refer to believers and true believers as the sons of God. He would call believers walking temples of the Holy Spirit. This temple was the one place where man previously could visit God and find redemption in the Old Testament. Now it's available to all of us, not just redemption and forgiveness, but the ability to minister to others, to have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us at all times. And then Paul goes further, that those who truly walk in faith, those are the sons of God, not the fallen angels or the disgusting creations. No, we are the sons of God. It is the Christians, which means little Jesus, walking and talking, ministering and changing the world on a daily basis. Here at Mount Hermon, Jesus flips the switch, turns the knob, reverses the course of all humanity. The keys to the kingdom won't just be for a few, but all who believe. It's over, devil. Jesus has his plan, and it's all downhill from here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to check out the website, messagetokings.com, or if you want to chat or connect with us, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.